Hi everyone. So I'm going to be talking about Keats's Ode to a Nightingale today. Please make sure that you're following along in your copy of English Romantic Verse and adding to your annotations. Um, the poem starts on page 276. And this poem is, is actually my favourite um, of the Keats poems that we study. It's probably my favourite romantic poem um, from the collection. Um, it's certainly the most personal of Keats's great odes. Um, and um, in terms of the the ode form, it um, is written in iambic pentameter. Um, it's quite regular in, in the rhythm, although there is a variation in the eighth line of each stanza, which is shorter. It's in iambic trimeter instead. Um, so that line is often a kind of standout line in, in the stanza. It's something perhaps that Keats is drawing attention to. Um, in terms of the rhyme scheme, the poem has a very regular rhyme scheme. Um, it's written um, with the first four lines as A, B, A, B. And then the last six lines are C, D, E, C, D, E. So there is kind of a division between the first four lines of the stanza and the last six lines of each stanza. Usually the first four lines kind of introduce an idea and then the last six lines either develop the idea or take it in a slightly different direction. Um, so, you, for example, you see that quite obviously in the first stanza where the first four lines are all about this kind of drowsy numbness that the speaker is experiencing and then there's a change um for the last six lines where he moves to kind of describing the uh the nightingale's song um and the happiness that it that it's making him feel so let's look a little bit more um at stanza one um he begins my heart aches and a drowsy numbness pains my sense as though of hemlock i had drunk or emptied some dull opiate to the drains. One minute passed and Leithwoods had sunk. So he is describing this feeling of, well, he calls it drowsy numbness. Um, it's it's painful to his senses. He feels as if, though he's drunk hemlock, which is a type of poison, or, or even taken drugs when he refers to opiates, um, as if he's kind of sinking Leithwoods. So um, Leith was the uh, river of forgetfulness or of oblivion in the Greek underworld. So we get that sense then of, um, you know, his, you know, his kind of numb senses. He's, um, you know, feeling very, very sleepy dull um and then we have a change for the next six lines and at line five he goes on to kind of explain well why is he feeling this um and he says it's not says tis not through envy of thy happy lot but being too happy in thine happiness the thy meaning you is of course the nightingale this is an ode so keats is addressing the nightingale he's speaking to the nightingale and he says it's not because he's envious of the nightingale's happiness but actually he feels too happy in the nightingale's happiness so this kind of excessive happiness is what's causing him to feel um so this drowsy numbness it's not because he's jealous of the nightingale how convincing you think that is, is really up to you to decide. 
um, because it's quite a sort of strange concept, really, to say that excessive happiness is what's made him feel this way. He goes on to continue addressing the nightingale, that thou, light-winged dryad of the trees, in some melodious plot of beech and green and shadows numberless, singest of summer in full-throated ease. So we've got a really lovely description of the nightingale, a light-winged dryad. Um, a dryad is like a sort of, like a nymph or a kind of forest pixie type thing. Um, and um, he, the... Uh, sound of the nightingale's song um you know he sings of summer so his song is all about summer um and it's full-throated ease so it seems effortless but it's full-throated in other words it's really loud and clear and um you can see there this the sort of assonance that's being used lots of long e sounds for example beach and green ease um lots of sibilant sounds there in the last um six lines of the stanza so there are kind of light airy um musical sounds are used in the um the second section of the stanza whereas in the first part of the stanza the first four lines the sounds are much heavier there's lots of d sounds and k sounds um which make it a really kind of obvious contrast between the first part of the poem and the second part of the poem so it's very heavy when he's describing that dullness that he's feeling and then it becomes much lighter and airier when he is describing the beautiful sound of the nightingale's song then stanza two Oh, for a draught of vintage that hath been called a long age in the deep delved earth, tasting of flora and the country green, dance and provincial song and sunburnt mirth. So Keats here is describing his longing for uh, a draught of vintage, in other words, a drink of, of wine. Um, and he describes this special drink that he is desiring as being... Um, a wine that kind of tastes of nature. So it's been cooled for a long time in the earth. It tastes of, of flora, so of flowers. It, it actually tastes of the green country. So there's kind of um, synesthesia really being used there because he's describing something tasting of 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 colour, of green. Um, it's going to taste of dancing, of the songs of, um, of provincial songs. Um, that's referring to a, a south... Um, French wine region um, and sunburnt mirth um, so yeah he wants this kind of this draft this vintage which tastes of of nature and the, and the summer um, and the country oh for a beaker full of the warm south full of the true the blushful hippocrine with beaded bubbles winking at the brim and purple stained mouth so he kind of wants to distill the countryside and the earth into this sort of powerful um drink um he refers to the um the hippocrene which is the fountain of the muses who inspire struggling poets so you know the liquid is is coming from there because of course he is taking inspiration from this as a poet um he makes it seem really appealing with the language he uses, the kind of playful alliteration, um, beaded bubbles winking at the brim that he's using there, um, the plosive sound as well, it makes it kind of sound like it's bubbling on the edge of your lips, um, the purple stained mouth. So there's lots of colour as well happening in this stanza, as well as taste 
and touch. Um, and in the final two lines, he he concludes the stanza with the reason why he wants to drink this. He says, that I might drink and leave the world unseen and with thee fade away into the forest dim. So again, he's talking to the nightingale. He wants to to disappear into the world of the nightingale. And the way that he thinks he can do that is by getting drunk, really, drinking this imagined draft of vintage that's been distilled from the earth and from the country so we have a sense of the speaker perhaps relying on on other substances like the opiates from stanza one the wine now from stanza two um which will provide a route of escapism and um we've also now established that the nightingale's world is very separate from the human world he wants to fade away into the forest dim um the, the nightingale is from somewhere else far away in the dim part of the forest that are separate from his world. And he wants to, to join the nightingale there. Stanza three begins with him repeating this idea from the end of stanza two. Fade far away, dissolve and quite forget what thou among the leaves hast never known. The weariness, the fever and the fret here where men sit and hear each other groan. So he's reiterating he wants to fade far away um, into the oblivion provided by drugs and drink and the imagination um, into the nightingale's world. And there is, I think, a little bit of envy suggested by the second line. He says, thou among the leaves hast never known. So the nightingale has never known the suffering that he's about to describe. And he did claim that he's not envious of the nightingale in stanza two, but I'm not sure how convincing that is, given that he he seems to be a bit envious that the nightingale is um, free from that suffering that he and other humans experience. And he lists this suffering, weariness, fever, fretting, so worrying, um, hearing um, men groaning with perhaps their sorrows, their pains and he provides a really vivid description um, of suffering he goes on where palsy shakes a few sad last gray hairs where youth grows pale and spectre thin and dies where but to think is to be full of sorrow and leaden-eyed despairs so he's describing sickness here, um, the sickness of old age, but also the sickness um, that comes to young people. Um, obviously, we know that Keats witnessed um, you know, you know, a lot of death um, and experienced it um, later himself at a very young age. So it was common for young people to, to die from diseases such as tuberculosis. Um, the, you know, this, this, very vivid description of death, the, the pale ghost-like youth, you know, spectre thin. Um, it's very, very bleak. Um, he says, but to think is to be full of sorrow and leaden-eyed despairs, which is quite a strong idea that actually just to have thoughts is to be full of sorrow and despair. There, There is no kind of separating thinking from experiencing suffering and despair. And this despair is exhausting. He describes it as leaden-eyed despair. So he is personifying his despairs as having these leaden eyes, so kind of heavy eyes. He is so weary and exhausted from suffering. Um, so this quite terrible description of the world of man 
seems very different from the world of nature and the world of the nightingale that Keats has been previously describing. So I think we can understand why he wants to escape this world and fade with the nightingale into the forest where he doesn't have to experience this suffering. He ends the stanza, where beauty cannot keep her lustrous eyes or new love pine at them beyond tomorrow. So here we have this image of, of beauty um, being impermanent. Beauty can't keep her lustrous eyes forever. She will lose her beautiful eyes and beauty will fade. Um, and love is also temporary. Um, it can't even last beyond tomorrow here. Um, so there is quite a sort of depressing end to the stanza, this idea of beauty and love being very, very temporary um, and inevitably fading. Stanza four begins with the exclamation, away, away, for I will fly to thee, not charioted by Bacchus and his pards, but on the viewless wings of poesy, though the dull brain perplexes and retards. So he is exclaiming that he's going to fly to the nightingale, but he says he's not going to do this, charioted by Bacchus and his pards. Now, Bacchus is the um the god of wine so he and pards means friends so he's basically saying he's had a kind of revelation he's he's not going to join the nightingale by drinking and getting drunk um and escaping that way he says instead he's going to do this through his poetry poesy is an archaic word for poetry so on the viewless wings of poetry these kind of invisible wings poetry is going to allow him to join the nightingale so these kind of metaphorical wings that he'll be given through his imagination are what's going to let him escape. So this stanza is very much about the kind of power of the imagination and the power of poetry itself. Um, he does say that the um, his brain kind of perplexes and retards him, so it sort of confuses and slows him down, but he's going to be able to do this through his poetry anyway. And then we have a, a really kind of sudden change um, in the next part of the stanza. Already with thee, tender is the night and haply the queen moon is on her throne, clustered around by all her starry fays. But here there is no light, save what from heaven is with the breezes blown through virtuous glooms and winding mossy ways. So suddenly at line five, he's already with the nightingale. You've got this you know, dramatic jump from a minute ago. He's saying he was going to join the the, um, the nightingale. Suddenly he's with the nightingale already. Um, so he has joined the nightingale through his imagination or in some sort of dreamlike state. And he then describes the night in a really kind of beautiful and whimsical way. The, the moon is personified as this kind of queen who's on a throne surrounded by... Um, starry fairies her kind of sort of servants perhaps um who are all clustered around her waiting on her um but he does say that there is no light where he is it's very very dark the only light that he um can see is that which has come down from heaven from above through the virtuous glooms and winding mossy ways so in other words the moonlight is kind of blocked by the forest canopy in the nightingale's home so and there's only a very little bit of light that is able to creep through. A nightingale is, of course, a night bird, a nocturnal bird. Um, so he is establishing the, the nightingale's habitat here um, and the fact that he has joined the nightingale here through his imagination and through his poetry. And the 
fact that he has noted the darkness of the setting is going to be really important in the next stanza. Keats begins stanza five by reiterating the darkness. He writes, I cannot see what flowers are at my feet, nor what soft incense hangs upon the boughs, but in embalmed darkness, guess each sweet wherewith the seasonable month endows, the grass, the thicket, and the fruit tree wild. So he um, is smelling the flowers because he cannot see them. He's relying upon the sense of smell to identify them. Um, and there's a lot of um, sibilance used here, um, the soft incense, um, for example. So it's quite a gentle um, stanza in terms of the language being used. He is um, describing the darkness as embalmed, which is an interesting choice because, of course, the darkness is perfumed with flowers, but I think embalmed has perhaps a subtle connotation of death because we think of 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 undertakers embalming bodies, of course. And that makes sense given that the next stanza is very much going to be about death. Um, he lists a lot of the flowers that he um, is identifying through smelling them. Um, the grass, the thicket and the fruit tree wild, white hawthorn and the pastoral eglantine, fast fading violets covered up, covered up in leaves and mid-May's eldest child, the coming muskrose full of dewy wine, the murmurous haunt of flies on summer eve, summer eve, sorry. So um, the fast fading violets, I think, is an interesting um, image because he is recognising that these flowers are temporary, they're going to fade very quickly. And the close alliteration of the F sound there kind of speeds up the phrase fast fading, it makes it quicker, um, which emphasises just how quickly these violets are going to fade. Um, the mixing of the senses is also worth noting because he talks of spring flowers, the musk rose, which is mid-May's eldest child, um, but he also ends the stanza with the image of mur the murmuring haunt of flies on summer eves. So I think perhaps then the mixing of the sense of the seasons of spring and summer um, reveal that this is a fantasy. It's not reality um, that Keats is describing here. The um, the stanza ends with sound. So the whole stanza has been all about smell. Um, but that last image is, is one of sound, um, that last line is one of sound, um, which which again leads on to the next stanza um, when, he, when he talks of, of listening to um, the, well, of, of listening to the nightingale. And you see that happens quite a lot in the poem, that the ending of the stanza provides a, an entry point to the next stanza. There's often a connection between the last line of, of, one stanza and the first line of the next. Stanza six begins with um, this really interesting idea about death. So he writes, Darkling I listen, and for many a time I have been half in love with easeful death, called him soft names in many amused rhyme to take into the air my quiet breath. Now more than ever seems it rich to die, to cease upon the midnight with no pain. Um, 
so he's he's in the dark he's listening to the nightingale song in the dark and he says that he has been half in love with easeful death so again he's using that that word ease he used that to describe the nightingale song in the first stanza um and death here is personified um which you know the first clue is the use of the capital letter um but then he describes death as this sort of male figure who he has been kind of whispering to and speaking to softly um in a very sort of intimate way um death is easeful it it seems like an easy escape a lot of this poem has been about ways of escaping the world of man and the suffering of man through drugs through drinking through the imagination and poetry and here is another alternative that actually death would provide another way of escaping um and he talks of how how easy it would be um to, he he wants death to to take his quiet breath now more than ever seems it rich to die so it, now is the time when it would seem like an like an easy and and a great time to die because um he's in the dark all of his senses are kind of limited he's sort of really left with just sight with just smell and sound so you know he there's almost a sense that perhaps death might be a bit like this you know he's in the dark anyway surrounded you know surrounded by darkness would death be something a bit like this he's wondering um so death seems like a kind of an easy option and he wants to die when um you know he says to cease upon the midnight with no pain while thou art pouring forth thy soul abroad in such an ecstasy so he's again addressing the nightingale so he's basically saying that while the bird is singing with this beautiful ecstasy in its voice this seems like the perfect time to die you know he's not going to get a better moment than this while everything is so perfect um you know go out on a high if you like but there is a sort of a counter argument to that in the last two lines. He said, still wouldst thou sing, and I have ears in vain to thy high requiem become a sod. So the problem is that if he were to die, his ears would be in vain. They'd be useless because he wouldn't be able to hear the nightingale's song anymore. The nightingale's song would become a requiem, which is a song for the dead. Um, but he would simply become a sod. In other words, he would become part of the earth. So, yeah, it seems like it would be a really easeful way to die right now perhaps the perfect chance to die but the downside would be that he would no longer get to experience the nightingale's beautiful song and again we see the transition from the end of the previous stanza to the beginning of the next stanza in stanza seven thou wast not born for death immortal bird so he he kind of draws upon the idea of death to move into this next stanza um and he's characterizing the nightingale as immortal now of course this specific bird that he's listening to is not immortal but what he's saying is that nightingales and their song has been kind of unchanging through the ages that there have always been nightingales singing and the song of the nightingale sounded the same hundreds and thousands of years ago as it does today um, so he writes, Thou wast not born for death, immortal bird. No hungry generations tread thee down. The voice I hear this passing night was heard in ancient days by emperor and clown. Perhaps the self-same song that found a path through the sad heart of Ruth when, sick for home, she stood in tears amid the alien corn. So he's describing how the nightingale song has been heard all through the, the generations by 
everybody from high up emperors to to clowns he imagines that even the biblical figure of ruth who experienced a lot of grief and heartache um she may have heard the nightingale song as well um so that's why the nightingale seems immortal because the song has always been there through history and at the end of the stanza he imagines this kind of almost fantasy magical world um, he says, the same that oft times hath charmed magic casements, opening on the foam of perilous seas in fairylands forlorn. So he imagines the nightingale kind of flying over the ocean um, and over fairylands. Um, and, then you know, the nightingale song is, is heard there as well. The next stanza, the last stanza, stanza eight, begins with that word forlorn repeated. So here is perhaps the most obvious example of the first line of the stanza echoing something from the last line of the previous stanza. So he's repeating the word forlorn. Forlorn, this time it's an exclamation. Forlorn, the very word is like a bell to toll me back from thee to my soul self. Adieu, the fancy cannot cheat so well as she is famed to do, deceiving elf. So he is pulled back to reality by this word forlorn. Forlorn means kind of sad and lonely. Um, and it's like a bell that tolls, um, a kind of loud ringing that kind of snaps him back to reality. Um, and back to his soul self. So he is alone. Um, he feels that he is yes, separate, separated perhaps now from the nightingale's world. Adieu, so goodbye. The fancy cannot cheat so well as she's famed to do, deceiving elf. The fancy here is a reference to his imagination. So he's basically saying that his imagination can't cheat so well as perhaps her reputation says she can. She's a deceiving elf. Again, this is his imagination. So his imagination has kind of tricked him into thinking he can escape and be with the nightingale. But actually, no, he can't because he is pulled back to reality. He repeats adieu, adieu. So he says goodbye again. Thy plaintive anthem fades past the near meadows, over the still stream, up the hillside, and now it is buried deep in the next valley glades. So the nightingale has flown away. Um, he says that the nightingale's plaintive anthem has faded. So a, a plaintive anthem is a kind of a sad and mournful song. So it's quite different from the happy song that was described in stanza one. Um, and the music is fading over the meadows, the, the stream, the, the hills into the next valley. So the nightingale is connected to all of nature um, and its song kind of passes through nature. But that leaves the speaker alone and and distant and distanced from the nightingale song. Um, and he ends with. Was it a vision or a waking dream? Fled is that music. Do I wake or sleep? So he ends with these two rhetorical questions. The first, was it a vision or a waking dream? So he's asking, was it a waking dream? So was this just a daydream? Or was it a vision, something perhaps with more of a kind of transitory insight, something with a bit more uh, meaning and substance to it? He's not sure. Um, fled is that music. So um, the... The music has has fled, and I think fled has a connotation of, of sort of abandonment as well. You know, the nightingale's not just flown away, but it's kind of fled. It's run away. It's it's flown away as quickly as possible to escape him, perhaps. And the last question: Do I wake or sleep? Is very ambiguous. Is he 
trying to make sense of his surroundings. So he's asking, am I awake right now or am I still asleep? Or is he describing a choice that he has, the choice to to wake or to sleep? You know, does he kind of wake up to, to his reality around him or does he choose to to sleep and perhaps to to escape, maybe even to go back into the dream world of the nightingale? So um, a very ambiguous um, ending to what I think is a very beautiful poem. Um, I hope that you've enjoyed it. Um, thank you very much for listening. <laughs>